0: Good evening, everyone. Am I on? Good. I want to make sure that I can be heard because I was instructed that I said Veterans Day this morning and not Memorial Day. Some people said that. I'm sure that not all of you heard correctly. I'm sorry about that. I do know it's Memorial Day tomorrow because for many years, uh, my whole family would join many other families who were Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and go to the Fort Sam National Cemetery and put flags on every single cemetery, every single tombstone. We're talking like 150,000 tombstones. It was always interesting, especially with little boys, but it was fun. At least it was fun for me. Don't ask Andrew. I want to mention a story for you guys. I like to begin with a story each week when I do things, and so I always have something to share. And a lady tells this story on herself. I would never tell this kind of story on myself, but she does. She says she was leaving Miami for Fort Lauderdale, and so she decides to stop at one of those rest areas on the side of the road, and she got into the bathroom, And the first stall is taken. So she goes into the second stall. She sits down, and then she hears a voice from the other stall. It says, hi there. How's it going? And she says, okay, I'm not really the type to strike up conversations with strangers in the washroom on the side of the road. But I didn't know what to say. She just asked me a question. So I said, not bad. And the voice says, so what are you doing? Well, I'm starting to feel like this is kind of weird I say, well, I'm going to Fort Lauderdale. Then I hear the other person, all flustered, say, look, I'll call you back. Every time I ask you a question, the idiot in the stall next door starts answering me. We all make mistakes, don't we? We all do things that don't quite work out the way we want them to. And so we are very thankful for the cross, That's why I'm thankful for the story that we're going to be focusing on tonight. When we think of the cross, we think of certain lessons that we learned from the cross. And we learned a myriad of lessons from the cross and all that that means for them. And while there, Jesus in the passage tonight teaches us three, I think, very powerful lessons about forgiveness. The first lesson, obviously, is that Jesus forgives us. You know, there's a group of people, the high priests, Pharisees. Romans, passers-by, even the disciples, some of them, are there watching this event. Jesus offers all of them forgiveness in verse 34. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. I mean, He is the one that, in my estimation, is the one most in charge at this moment. And He is the one extending forgiveness. And so he extends forgiveness to everyone in the space that's in front of him. But at, the, but at the same time, he extends forgiveness to a single man. In this story, we have a man who evidently had lived an evil life. He was a thief. He was a condemned thief. And evidently, according to the, the wording of the text, he had done it. And so... They had chosen to kill Him. Jesus not only forgives Him the most immediate sins, but He forgives Him of all of His sins. And He says, Today you're going to be with Me in paradise. Now that is a great promise. And so He extends forgiveness to the one. At the same time, He extends forgiveness to the all, which I think is a great lesson. Jesus didn't come to this earth and down the cross so that He could nail us to the wall. That's not why He did that. He didn't come to nitpick at you and everything that you've done right and wrong. Jesus wants to forgive you. That's the lesson He wants you to hear tonight. He wants to forgive you. And so, we need to hear and receive that story and that lesson. Sometimes we don't forgive ourselves. Has anybody ever here ever done that? You know, you've done something stupid and you kind of carry it with you for a while. But Jesus says it's no big deal. You're going to survive because you're my creature. So Jesus wants to forgive you. He really does. Now the second lesson I think he gives us is we need to forgive others. Jesus told us what to do. In Matthew chapter five and verse forty-four, at the beginning of the sermon on the mount, as Barry was working on this morning, he says, "But I tell you, uh, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you." After this, we read through the whole Gospel of Matthew, and we read about all the different ways that Jesus illustrates this text and this this life of forgiveness, and he offers this forgiveness to everyone. Everyone around. And so on the cross, he shows us two instances of how to forgive. As I said, he's already forgiven everybody, and then he forgives the single guy. So the question is how are you doing on forgiveness? How do you do on forgiving others? You know, our standard so often, we like Peter. You know, remember Peter, whenever he goes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, How many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. He thought he was being pretty generous there. And Jesus' response, as you know so well, is, I tell you not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Seventy times seven. Jesus is telling him this is a type of forgiveness that you've not heard about up to this point in your life. But this is a forgiveness that goes beyond a number to something much more. Jesus points out that there's an unlimited amount of forgiveness. So, on your sheets, I've got two questions I want you to fill in there. Number one, is my forgiveness unlimited? That's what Jesus is telling you there. Is your forgiveness of your brother unlimited? Is your forgiveness of that really irritating sister, Unlimited. Is it something that you do over and over and over again? Because that's what Jesus is saying. It's unlimited. And I think I messed up my thing again. Okay. I love that. Um, what Jesus means when we don't forgive is based, uh, is too often we forgive people based upon them making a change in their life. We forgive not that way. But we forgive based upon our faith in Jesus Christ. You see, too often people think, I'm only going to forgive them if they do blank. And Jesus doesn't do that on the cross. He offers forgiveness to all the people. And it is unconditional. He offers that forgiveness. And so, He is saying, when we forgive others, we don't do it based upon something the other person does. We do it based upon something already done for me. Done for me. And that's why I forgive. I forgive because God did it first. Now, that's just one of the challenges. The other question is, is my forgiveness unconditional? Or do I establish conditions? Do I ask people to do certain things before I'm willing to forgive them? You know, what's interesting about the thief on the cross is... He couldn't prove his change of heart. Have you ever thought about that? He couldn't prove through a good life, you know, through changing the way he lives his life, that he had actually, truly believed in Jesus. And so, if anybody questioned whether or not he believed, what do we depend upon? Well, Jesus is God, so he knows our things, right? I'm sure he does. And that's why He offers Him forgiveness. But at the same time, I can't know what other people think and truly believe in their hearts. So what do I do? My forgiveness, I think, needs to be unconditional. It needs to be uh, out there opening it all for other people. And when I offer forgiveness that way, then I am blessed and other people are blessed. You see, I know I don't have control over you. I, um, a few years ago, I ran across a story that I really struck me, and in the midst of it was a famous picture. This is a picture from the Vietnam War, and there's a lot of gory pictures from the Vietnam War, but this one, though not gory, was one that was very striking. It was printed on the front page of the New York Times. It won a Pulitzer Prize. I'm going to show it to you. So I want you to remember, many of you have already seen this picture of these children running. And and they were just hit by a bomb, or several bombs, from um, the Americans. This happened in 1972. I don't know if you remember this. I'm sure I'm not old enough to actually remember when it occurred. But I remember seeing this picture on several occasions, because it's a very well-known picture. This child, in this picture, her name is... is if i was saying this right, Pham T. Kim Phuc. And I want to tell you about something that happened with her. So I'm going to talk about, first, a man. The Reverend John Plumer's Nightmare. A picture flashes huge in black and white, and a child screams. You've seen this picture. A nine-year-old Vietnamese girl, her clothes incinerated by napalm, Flees an American-led assault on her village, a brutal image from a brutal war, and it's imprinted on our psyche. One day in June 1972, he, John Plumer, ordered bombers to rain fire on the village of Trang Bang. At the time, it was just another attack on another collection of faceless foes, but he then saw the picture of Pom T. Kim Phuc. For decades... Plumer struggled with his conscience. He drank. He ended up divorcing, not just once, but twice. He searched for God. He says, it took a long time, but I came to realize I would never have any peace unless I could talk to her, Plumer says. I had to look her in the eye and tell her how sorry I am. So last autumn, Plumer found out that she was going to be speaking at an address to the Veterans Day observance. Let me mention at this, that this article was written in 1979, 1997. And so he went to the black, he planned to go to that speaking. He said, if I could talk face to face with the pilot, she says, if I could talk face to face with the pilot who dropped the bombs, I would tell him we cannot change history, but we should try to do good things for the present and for the future to promote peace. Plumer gasped. It was as though she was talking directly to him. He scribbled a note. Kim, I am that man. And he asked a police officer to carry it to her. Then Plumer pushed through the crowd trying to reach her. When Kim finished her speech, Plumer feared he might lose her. A friend grabbed his arm and dragged him forward, and he found himself swept along a few steps behind her as she heads away from the memorial. You see, she was very apprehensive about the media at this event and really about the crowds. She was eager to get back to her hotel. But an escort from the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund saw Plumer's note and he whispered to Kim that Plumer was right behind her. She took a few more steps and then she stopped. I couldn't move anymore, she says. I stopped, I turned, and he looked at me. No news photographer took this picture. But next to the Vietnam War Memorial, the soldier, now 49, and child, now 33, embraced. She just opened her arms to me, and I fell into her arms sobbing, Plumer says. All I could say is, I'm so sorry. I'm just so very sorry. And she patted Plumer's back, and she says, it's all right. I forgive. I forgive. They took this picture at that time. You see, in the meantime, from when the first picture was made and when this picture was made, this, this young Vietnamese woman had learned about Jesus and had been converted. And she learned what it meant to forgive. And so before she ever met this man, she'd already forgiven him. That takes a lot from us. But Jesus paves the way in the cross. So that's our second lesson that we need to be ready to forgive others. Now, there's a third lesson, and I don't like this one at all. But the third lesson is, can we miss forgiveness? As I pondered the situation described by Luke, a man is being crucified for stealing, comes to some type of faith in Jesus while hanging there on the cross. I began to wonder, why did one man, one guy in that huge crowd see the Messiah, see the Savior, and no one else did. Did he see Jesus before this maybe sometime? And maybe Jesus was teaching and he listened to him? Maybe that. Maybe he saw a miracle. Maybe he just sees how Jesus reacted while on the cross to the crowd and to those shouting at him and realizes, this is not a man next to me, it's something more this man is the Messiah. I wondered maybe if he had family members who had been talking to him, maybe even they mentioned to him the fact that Jesus was going to be crucified next to him. I don't know. In a culture so different from ours, where in our culture, people make deathbed confessions of faith in Christ. But in their culture, that would never have happened. No one believed that Jesus was the Messiah and would have professed that at death. In reality, we don't know. We may never know. But it does provide a handy juxtaposition for Luke to use. Because Luke put it there for a reason. He included that story for a reason. And that is so we can see the one who believes compared to the one who who doesn't believe. Even though they're standing in front of the same thing. They're participating in the same event. You see, the rulers here, as Luke describes them, Matthew uses the term, scribes, chief priests, and elders are all religious men and women. They're religious people who study the Scriptures, who know the Scriptures. They trust God to some level but they mock Him. They mock Him. They don't see. It's always interesting too, also in that crowd are actual pagans, Romans and others, passers-by. And they don't see Jesus, but one does. Well, I'm going to point out two reasons I think they don't see Him. One is self-centeredness. Caiaphas, the high priest that year spoke in the book of John, chapter 11, verse 48. If we let Him go on like this, everyone will believe in Him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, the important words there in that phrase, in that passage, is the word our. Our place and our nation. He's a little possessive, isn't he? It's the nation Caiaphasus? Where's the nation God's? You know? This church is not my church. It's God's church, isn't it? Somebody say amen. That's right. You're really glad of that too, aren't you? <laughs> not anybody's church. It's God's church. But he believed it was his. He was most focused on his ability to raid, to rule Jerusalem, to have that temple, to make money off the money changers, to keep the Romans at bay. He has no intention of sharing power to someone that doesn't believe what he believes needs to be done. So even though Jesus is living proof in front of these men over and over again that God is there and He is God, they refuse to see. They look at the same thing over and over again. And they refuse to see it. Selfishness always interferes with forgiveness. We're not willing to forgive because then I've got to let somebody else off their their back. Off the hook. I have to allow them to go free. I wanted to make them pay for what they did to me. I ran across an interesting story about a lady, and I, I hesitate to share this, but I decided to do it anyway because it illustrates what's going on. And I think what, what we as Christians struggle with in our self-centeredness. Jill Briscoe writes, tells a story about another lady A woman, she says, I met at a conference, told me how she was sexually abused as a small child by her father. She grew up, overcame the emotional damage that had been done, and eventually married a missionary. Years later, after her children were fully grown, she received a letter from her father telling her that he had become a Christian and he had asked God for forgiveness and he had received forgiveness He had, moreover, realized he had sinned dreadfully against her and was writing to ask for her pardon. Feelings she didn't know suddenly surfaced. It wasn't fair. He should pay for what he had done. She thought bitterly. It was all too easy. And now he was going to be part of the family? She was sure her home church was busy killing the fattened calf for him and was going to invite her to the party. She was angry and resentful. Then she had a dream. She saw her father standing on an empty stage. Above him appeared the hands of God holding a white robe of righteousness. She recognized it at once, for she was wearing one just like it. And as the robe began to descend towards her father, she woke up crying out, No, it isn't fair. What about me? And she finally came to realize the only way she could rejoice as her heavenly father pleaded with her to do was to realize that her earthly father was now wearing the same robe she was. They were the same in God's sight. It had cost his son's life to provide both those robes. As she began to see her father clothed with garments of grace, she began to be able finally to rejoice again. I would imagine that would be a hard forgiveness, a very hard forgiveness. But God calls us to amazing things. And I think freedom is only found in forgiveness. Another thing that gets in our way is pride. Caiaphas and the other rulers had so much pride in their positions, and their learning, and their own understanding of the world, they couldn't accept someone offering a different interpretation. Because this would make them wrong. And Caiaphas and his buddies, they were never wrong. Our own pride can keep us from confessing our sins. But confession of sin is vital in the process of forgiveness. Being willing to face that sin, to make the change to overcome it through the power of the Holy Spirit, is critical. But often that only happens when I'm willing to confess it, when I'm willing to tell someone else what I've done wrong. John Ortberg, John Ortberg, the author, tells a story of how one day he did this. He sat down at a table, across from a friend, and he confessed his sins. All of them. It took a little while, but he just talked to the man. It was a trusted friend, obviously. When he was done, that friend said, John, this hasn't changed anything. I love you, and I always love you, and I forgive you. And John writes about how incredibly freeing that was. That his friend was willing to say those words. And John knew that, he, that his sins were forgiven. But to have another human being hear those same sins and say that was an amazing event for him. It totally changes us. I think that's why James tells us to forgive our sins. To, to talk about forgiveness to each other. I um, I have a uh, a story as I want to close. That well, I'm just going to tell you. John Ortberg tells it in his book, uh, "The Me I Want to Be," about. Uh, the year that they had a daughter graduate from Azusa Pacific University. Sounds like to me a a university like ACU. People graduate with a lot of money in debt. My wife spoke at the commencement, so we gathered with a group of 50 or so faculty, alumni, and administration before the ceremony. A few dozen people had graduated 50 years earlier, and they were there also to celebrate with their freshly minted co-alums. At one point, John Wallace, the university president, pulled three seniors into the center of the room and told us all they were going to be serving under-resourced people in impoverished areas for several years after graduation. The graduating seniors said a few words about where they were going and why, and we applauded. They thought that was why they were there, but John turned his back on the rest of us, faced the three students, and told them the real reason they were in the room. Somebody you do not know has heard what you're doing, John said. He wants you to be able to serve the people where you're going without any impediment. So he's given a gift. He's asked to remain anonymous, but here is what he has done for you. John turned to the first student, looked her in the eye and said, You've been forgiven your school debt of $105,000. It took a few moments for the words to sink in. The student shook her head at first. The thought registered, and she began to cry at the sheer unexpected generosity of a mountain of debt wiped out in a moment by someone she had ever met. She had never met. John turned to the next student. You have been forgiven your debt of $70,000. John turned to the third student. By this time, she knew what was coming, but it was as if she couldn't believe it was happening until she heard the words... You have been forgiven your debt of $130,000. All three students were trembling. Their lives had been changed in a twinkling by the extravagance of someone they had never met. All of us who watched were so moved. It was as if we had experienced the forgiveness ourselves. There was not a dry eye in the room. I wanted so badly to say, I have a daughter who's graduating that's in debt. But an unpayable debt by an unseen forgiver, an unforgettable gift. We have been forgiven. We've been forgiven. We've been forgiven. Let's pray. Father, you are amazing. I read this story, Father, and I really am Thunderstruck, speechless. I don't understand Your incredible grace, Lord. I know how bad I am. I know how bad people can be. And Father, to to know that You want a relationship with us to where You'll extend forgiveness like this. Father, thank You so much for Jesus. Thank You for Your forgiveness for us. Father, I pray that we can extend Your forgiveness to the people around us and that Your grace may spread in this community, Father, and that Your grace can spread through this church, through these walls, through all this community around us. And Father, help us to be Your light. Thank You, Lord, so much for Your incredible gift. It's through Your Son we pray. We want to offer an invitation song. If you have any reason, any prayer request that you might have a need to do and ask for the forgiveness of God or for the prayers of this church, we want to offer that to you that moment now as we stand and sing this invitation song.